But if you would, please take a copy of God's Word. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah the prophet. I, I like to say if you're unfamiliar with where to find books and things like that, if you didn't uh, win the sword drill, as they call them back in uh, children's Sunday school, um, flip your Bible open to the middle, you'll find Psalms. Go a couple books to the right, you'll find a big one named Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, we'll read the whole chapter this morning. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah in Jerusalem. It will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts is a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled." And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats. to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's ask His blessing now as we consider His word together. Let's pray. Oh God, you are good, and what you do is good. Would you speak to us your good word that we need to hear? Would you change our hearts, oh God? 
that we might hear and respond to all that you have to say to us, your people. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If last week was a shotgun blast and a sensory overload, then this week is a pair of pictures. Shocking pictures. Contrasting pictures. Picture number one is verses one through five. In the latter days, this is what God's people, God's city, God's mountain will look like. The influence they will have on those around them. Picture number two is verses 6 through 21, similar to chapter 3. But picture number two is reality, the true condition of God's people back in the 8th century B.C. in Judah and Jerusalem, and it wasn't pretty. Two pictures, ideal and actual, or in the words of one of our staff members, ideal and real. Ideal, what will be, what should be, real, reality, actuality, the true condition, the painful truth. In the words of Alec Moitier, God's people will only see picture number two transform into picture number one if they heed God's call from verse five. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Again, two pictures, but three main points this week. Point number one is going to focus on picture number one. Points two and three focus on picture number two. Hopefully we can keep all that straight. Point number one this morning, the glorious future of God's holy city. The glorious future of God's holy city in verses one through five. Verse 2 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Some geography is helpful here to remind us what ancient Israelites would have known intuitively. Mount Zion, where Jerusalem sat, the symbolic dwelling place of God, the location of His temple, His capital, wasn't actually that high of a mountain. It was, it was a glorified hill. 2,400 feet above sea level at its peak. It's about as high as central Kansas. Now, Mount Hermon, on the other hand, that was a high mountain in northern Israel, the highest mountain in the region, 9,200 feet. In comparison to what was around it, it must have looked like Pike's Peak, snow caps and all. And furthermore, mountains had significance for the false religions in and around Israel. They, they clamored for the high places. You see that phrase all over the place in the Old Testament. The high places so that they could worship in a spot where heaven met earth. And of course, for us, heaven meets earth in the person of Jesus, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. But back then, they clamored for the highest mountains so that they could somehow have access to the transcendent. And Isaiah prophesies of a day when the competition for the high places will be ended. When Mount Zion, the mountain of the house of the Lord, it'll sprout up like Jack's magic beanstalk. When the Lord's mountain will stand supreme. This will happen, it says, in the latter days, or you might say in the last days. And even though post-Pentecost Christians, that's us, people that live after Acts 2, after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, even though we live at the beginning of the latter days, one would imagine that this will not fully take place until the Lord returns once again. But what else did Isaiah see? Starting at the very end of verse 2, it says, In all the nations 
shall flow to it, verse 3, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All the nations are coming, not just Israel. The height of the mountain, uh, unscalably high, no, doesn't stop them. They have to get there. One author calls it a supernatural magnetism that draws them in. The original audience probably would have thought of a picture of Passover feast when visitors would quadruple the population of Jerusalem from 50,000 to 200,000, some estimate. You know, similar things happen in college towns on a football weekend. Lincoln, Nebraska is the most populated city in the state. Some of you are saying, no, that's not true. Lincoln is is not that big. When the Cornhuskers are playing a home game, it's the most populated city in the state. That's the idea of people just flocking into this town. In Isaiah 42, verses 18 through 25, Israel will actually be rebuked for their failure to evangelize the surrounding nations. But here Isaiah pictures All of the people, all of the nations flocking to Holy Zion. One author says it this way. The ingathering of the nations is to be the climax of what Israel had been led to expect every time they met for great occasions of worship. This is what they were expecting. And you might might say, why why are the nations flocking to Israel in this, this image here? Well, what do they say? So that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. That's what Isaiah pictures happening. We long for that day. You know, I just finally finished Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's got a long subtitle as well. It's about expressive individualism. If you don't know that phrase, you should Google it. It's, in a sense, what has followed after postmodernism. In this book, he thoroughly analyzes, amongst other things, the history of the LGBT movement, trying to explain, not excuse, not defend, how we got to the cultural moment we find ourselves in now, when seemingly fewer and fewer people want to walk in the Lord's ways. At one point, he quotes a lesbian author whose longtime female partner had become a transgender man. And Truman and OPC pastor, a church history professor, he says the internal or psychological desire for happiness that led this woman to her lesbian lifestyle, it did two things. It forced her to affirm this radical choice by her partner to become a transgender man so that she, or you might say he, it's hard to figure some of that out, we all know, could be happy. But it did something else. It also led to an identity crisis for this woman because her partner, her relationship with her was now very different. I know some of you are wondering, what is he doing here? What is the point of all this? Well, Truman simply points out that this identity crisis that this woman had, it's the result of looking inward for affirmation, not looking to any outer objective standard outside of the self, outside of our desire for psychological affirmation and happiness. Why do I share all that? Because stories like that, whether you like it or not, 
becoming more and more common. People that subscribe to the wisdom of the world are at times becoming more and more rudderless, confused. They've tried to live the way that the world tells them to live and they have found it wanting. They've followed their heart without realizing what Jeremiah the prophet said. The heart is sick, deceitful. It needs redemption. And we as God's people should hope for a day when people in the world around us will, as it says here, long for God's law. His Torah, that's the Hebrew word there. It means not just law in the sense of thou shalt, but it also means instruction. His paths of righteousness, which lead us to blessing instead of misery. Are we ready to share the Lord's instruction with those who are so confused that they don't know where to start? Isaiah says one day people are going to long for the Lord's instruction and teaching. Are we ready to help them find it? God is ready to do it. Are we ready to join in in that effort? Isaiah shows us the nations longing to come to God's holy city, which is again also a a high mountain. He pictures peace for that city in verse 4, beating their swords into plowshares, farming tools. One author sees the farming tools as a return to Eden. And then he concludes the section, verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This call to holiness, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's notable in light of their actual condition, their real condition, which we'll see in just a second, verses 6 and following. Alec Moitier says, if others are ever to say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, Judah must heed the call, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah is trying to inspire them, to give them hope, to show them their potential. Barry Webb says, religion for Isaiah was never an escape from reality. It was not the opiate of the masses, you might say, for him. It was the source from which he drew the strength he needed to face reality squarely. It is how we must live too, he says. Will it ever be this good on this side of the new heavens and the new earth? I'm not sure. I'm an amillennialist. I think the world will get better and worse at the same time until the final days. But if we walk in the light of the Lord, pursuing personal holiness out of gratitude for God's grace, proclaiming that same grace to others, then this is a picture of what God's holy city can be, what God's holy people can be, holy by His grace, by the blood of Jesus. It's what we can be, at least in part, a gracious people of peace, characterized by God's truth and instruction, ready to share it with others. That was the ideal for 8th century B.C. Israel. Still the ideal for us, God's present-day people. But what was real? What was reality? What was really going on among God's people back then? After the glorious future of God's holy city, we also see, secondly, the ugly pride of man's downfall. The ugly pride of man's downfall, verses 6 through 19. Look with me at verse 6 for a moment. It says, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. 
and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. The peculiar people, the holy nation, has become like all the other nations. As you go through verses 6 through 9, if you read through them, you see so many contrasts from what Israel should have been. Instead of the holy city of verses 2 through 5, no, you see pride, you see idols, you see conformity to the world. The nations are not drawn to Zion because she has become like them, seeking their wisdom, their fortune tellers. The nations do not want Israel's spiritual treasures because she has stockpiled earthly treasures, silver and gold, found her peace and security in them. The nations don't find peace among God's people because they are building their arsenals, their war horses. The nations do not seek Israel's God because Israel is inventing and building her own gods. She is seeking power in what her hands have made as if creation, the creation, could possibly be more powerful than the Creator. So the result is no surprise. Verse 9, so man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Her idolatry is the result of her pride. She thinks she can control her fate, pull the strings. If she just amasses enough wealth, enough security, military might, or something else, enough wisdom, then she will be okay. Now all of these things, wealth, security, wisdom, could rightly be called idols because Israel is trusting these good things more than she trusts in God. But, but on top of that, She's seeking the wrong wisdom, fortune tellers and the like. She is building actual idols, wood and stone. As if the wood and stone can harness some kind of unseen spiritual power. I lost touch with a friend of mine who is Hindu. When we first met, he explained why he was attending RUF, the PCA's college or campus ministry, why he was attending the one in town. And he said he, he couldn't find a Hindu temple. Uh, he was born in India. He couldn't find a Hindu temple, so he just decided that he would make Jesus his God while he was in the States. He said this with no shame, no, no embarrassment. It was just the logical extension of his polytheistic beliefs. But I would ask you, are we, are we that different? Do we want a little dose of wealth and security? to go along with Jesus, just in case. Just in case God is not as good as He says He is. Just in case. And is it possible that sometimes we trust the just in case a little bit more than we should, a little bit more than God Himself, the one true and living God? My Hindu friend, John Piper books on the atonement, long talks in my kitchen weren't enough to convince him of the exclusivity of Christ. I hope God's word is enough to convince us to trust him alone. Because if we don't, God says he alone will be exalted one day. Whether we trust in him or not, he will be exalted. It says in verses 11 and 12, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day 
against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. What follows verse 12 was a rhetorical onslaught against man's pride, the things that man trusts in, the mighty expensive cedars of Lebanon, the ships of Tarshish, which powered the ancient economy, high towers and walls, Israel's department of defense, even the idols, the, the literal idols, are put on notice in verse 18, and the idols shall utterly pass away. Some say verses 10 through 17 is God being exalted over man, and verses 18 through 21 is God being exalted over the idols. Either way, however you outline it, Barry Webb says the hub of the problem is pride. It has a thousand subtle and devious ways of manifesting itself, and is ugliest of all when it dons religious garb. For example, loving the truth is important. It's one of the things Isaiah extols by extension in verses 2 through 5, this glorious ideal that we've seen, loving the truth, it's important. It can lead to pride. When we think we are better because we know the truth, right? You've seen this maybe in someone else. It's so subtle, we have to be on guard for it. Even, even when we think we've spotted it in our neighbor, even if we are taking the opposite position from our prideful neighbor, right? Well, he's just a prideful jerk, but I have a different opinion than him, so I can't be a prideful jerk, right? You can be prideful and be correct. You can be prideful and be wrong. You can be prideful because you have so much knowledge. You can be prideful because you don't trust all that highfalutin talk and fancy degrees because my simple common sense is better. Because I am untainted by higher learning. Pride can get in any way it pleases. Another thing pride can do is blind you to your faults. This seems to have happened to Israel. Shouldn't they have noticed these sins that Isaiah mentions? Of course, they should have. But they didn't. They don't seem to have noticed. Most commentators think that Israel was begging for what is mentioned in verse 12, the day of the Lord. Read verse 12 with me. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. The day of the Lord, it's called that because it was the day of the Lord's victory over all his enemies. And Israel seemed to think that God would come and he would wipe out all of God's ungodly enemies. And that is exactly what God planned to do. But Isaiah's message must have shocked them because what does he say? Israel, the day of the Lord is coming against you, against your pride, against your strong in powerful things, your things that you trust in, including those idols that you once found so detestable. God comes to his people and he says, I'll bring you low, I'll bring your treasures low, and I, the Lord alone, will be exalted in that day. Verse 17, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The haughtiness of men, all those things, one author describes them as everything in which people have trusted instead of trusting the living God. Did they realize that they were trusting in something else besides God? Probably not. 
reminds you, maybe, of Matthew 7, where Jesus tells people who thought they were serving God, depart from me, I never knew you. The old evangelism explosion question asked something like, what will you say when God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? Now, leave aside the fact that God probably won't interview us like that when we get to heaven, best I can tell. But I think at this point, a line from D. James Kennedy is appropriate. He once said, I like the way I do evangelism better than the way that you don't. Um, <laughs> took a minute, didn't it, for some of us? <laughs> but if you answer that hypothetical question, why should I let you into heaven? If you answer that hypothetical question with anything you have done, I went to church, I made a commitment, I served in this ministry or that ministry or whatever. If you answer anything like that, that's a warning sign. A sign that you're in trouble. That your trust might be misplaced. We need to be able to get back to this. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And no, we may not see this kind of pride, this kind of misplaced trust in ourselves, but it reminds us of 1 Corinthians 10, 12, where it says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And how do you do that? How do you do that? I have two suggestions. One, ask yourself if you believe God loves you on your bad days, on your bad days. We all think he loves us on our good days, right? On your bad days when you've blown it. Is it enough that Jesus died and that he died for me? Or do you feel the need to clean yourself up, to go do something good, to, to justify yourself, to cancel out the bad? Or are you content to rest upon Jesus in his atoning blood? Now, you should want to do better the next day. Don't get me wrong. But are you trusting the goodness to save you? Or are you trusting God's goodness, his sacrifice, his mercy, his provision, his atonement? To save you. That's one thing. Another thing you can do is give thanks for your salvation. Every day. Give thanks. Put it on a prayer list, a prayer card. Write it on your bathroom mirror or whatever you have to do. Put it on your iPhone so you see it every morning when you get up. Ask Him to help you love the gospel more today than you did yesterday. In other words, humble yourself before God humbles you. As James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We've seen the ugly pride of man's downfall, and now we also see, thirdly, the terrible dread of God's majesty. The terrible dread of God's majesty. In verse 10, as well as 19 through 22. Now this part of the picture reappears in Revelation 6. Uh, but remember, three points this morning, but there's really only two pictures. We're taking two main points to talk about this final picture. Those two pictures are the ideal, the future, and the real, the actual condition of Israel, particularly their spiritual condition, largely trusting in the wrong things, trusting other things, good things in some cases, trusting those things more than God. And what's the result? A man trusting himself or his idols or his riches and security that he can make for himself. God's judgment is the result. And how does unrepentant man respond to this judgment? He hides. He hides. You see it in several places. Verse 10, 
Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. Verse 19, And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Verse 21, it says, They will cast away their idols and they will go, 21, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Hiding under the rocks because of the terror of the Lord, the dread of His majesty and His splendor. It's this picture that He is beautiful and He is terrifying. C.S. Lewis said, Aslan is not safe. Verse 22 might seem like it's out of place, but I'm going to argue it's not. Verse 22, after all that, says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Just think with me for a moment. Make the connection. What are verses 6 and following all about? All about pride, about improper objects of our trust, ourselves, our accomplishments, our abilities, our things, wealth, security, the, the military, etc., military might, good things. I think those are all good things. Good things that should not become our ultimate trust. Now, we can also trust idols, which ultimately have no power because they're our creation, and by implication, we can make those other good things into idols if we trust them more than we trust God. And we can also make, verse 22, an idol out of certain powerful men. The Bible warns against this in various places. One example, Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. You can picture it. This religious leader, this political leader, he'll do the right thing. That'll make everything okay. But what happens when he makes a mistake? Our hopes are crushed. What happens if we trust those leaders more than we trust the God who moves in mysterious ways? We might find, like Israel, that we were trusting the wrong thing. We might find that God is ready to judge us. But again, as we said before, it's not too late. We've been describing two pictures. We've been using those words ideal and real. Maybe a better way to say it will be this. Where you should be headed, where you are headed. Where you should be headed. Holy Mount Zion, the nations long to come to God, to come to His people where you are headed. Isaiah says to Israel, you're headed for a day of reckoning. The day of the Lord that, that you wanted, it's coming. But if you aren't careful, you will be the objects of judgment. But you don't have to be. If you stop regarding man, if you stop trusting man, if you stop your pride, your presumption. Psalm 2 <clears throat> includes a warning for the wise, the mighty, the powerful kings of the earth. But it ends with hope. I'll read verses 10 through 12. Some of this we used as our call to worship. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. 
It's as if Psalm 2 and Isaiah 2 are both saying, stop trusting man, take refuge in God. If you do this, you'll never have to hide under the rocks to hide from God's wrath. As Derek Kidner once said of Psalm 2, the only refuge from him is in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He isn't safe, but he's good. Speaking of which, one author points out an interesting parallel in the Hebrew text between Isaiah 2.22, what we read a second ago, and Isaiah 53. Isaiah 2.22, the last verse of our passage this morning, says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Stop regarding, maybe stop esteeming man. Whereas Isaiah 53.3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The end of the verse, he was, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Same word. It's as if our author is saying we are esteeming the wrong man. Any mere man cannot save you. No matter what he promises, no matter how charismatic he is, only the God-man can save you. Only the one who's borne your griefs, carried your sorrows. Only the one who was crushed for our iniquities. Only the one who emptied himself of pride. Became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Isaiah 2 almost reads like a tragedy. Almost. People who thought they were in the right. People who thought God would deliver them, destroy their enemies. Only to find out they were headed for judgment. But then again, the story does not have to end that way. This is a warning for them and for us. Stop regarding man. Another warning is implied. Stop trusting anything besides God himself. Stop trusting yourself, your goodness, your accomplishments. If you are bearing good fruit in your life, then amen. Praise the Lord. Beg God for more mercy to keep following hard after him. And if your fruit is rotten, so to speak, then turn from your sin, pride, or whatever else it might be, and turn to your Savior. As Isaiah says in verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. His light and truth are here. They are within our grasp. He has shown us what He wants. He wants us to walk humbly. He wants us to tremble at His word. He wants us to turn to him, to trust the suffering servant, despised in the eyes of the world because of his suffering, but beautiful in our eyes for the same reason, because by his wounds we are healed, shielded from his wrath, and by his wounds we are able to enter into his holy city so that one day we will feast in the house of Zion, and until then we give thanks for the small foretaste that he gives us. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are good, and what you do is good. Your goodness to us never fails. Be with us now. Drive these lessons down deep into our heart and help us to remember your promises. And Father, if we are of little faith, then Father, may your word, your sacrament, reinforce your good promises to us. 
May we taste and see that you are good. We ask it in Christ's most holy, precious name. Amen.